Pacifico Radio. This is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razozan. And I'm Khalil Bendib. This week, we speak with world-renowned dancer and choreographer, Shahrokh Moshkin Ghalam, about his new performance of Love Stories of the Shahnameh, playing on March 18th at the Montgomery Theater in San Jose. But first, on Saturday, March 10th, we lost prominent and celebrated anthropologist and a dear friend of our program, UC Berkeley professor Sabah Mahmoud. This week, we celebrate her life and pay tribute to her everlasting legacy by airing one of her last lectures given at Boaziji University in Istanbul in 2015. Stay with us. Sabo Mahmoud, professor of anthropology and a scholar of modern Egypt at the University of California, Berkeley, passed away on March 10th after a battle with cancer. Professor Mahmoud made important contributions to debate on secularism and opening up new ways of understanding religion in public life in a climate of increasingly racist scholarship denouncing Muslim societies she brought a nuanced and educated understanding of Islam into discussions of feminist theory, ethics, and politics. In her words, quote, political secularism is the modern state's sovereign power to recognize substantive features of religious life, stipulating what religion is or ought to be, end of quote. Professor Mahmoud was the author of Politics of Piety, the Islamic Revival, and the Feminist Subject, which won the Victoria Shock Award from the American Political Science Association, and her latest, Religious Difference in a Secular Age, a Minority Report. Professor Mahmoud contributed to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa during the historic Arab uprisings of 2010-2011 and was interviewed on this program, and she was a close friend of the show. Sabah Mahmoud will be sorely missed. To honor her memory, we are airing a lecture Professor Mahmoud delivered at Boaziji University in Istanbul in 2015, titled Minority Rights, Geopolitics, and Secular Government. Professor Mahmoud's work has been instrumental to how scholars in anthropology and related disciplines, as well as many who labor in the world beyond academia, think about the relationship between religion and secularism, ethics and politics, and freedom and agency. In the 2005 preface to her groundbreaking study, Politics of Piety, the Islamic Revival, and the Feminist Subject, Mahmoud wrote that to think through what she calls the conundrums, puzzles, and challenges of the growth and support for Islamist movements in her native Pakistan, she had to undertake a series of dislocations, most notably from Pakistan to Egypt, that rendered her own political commitments less certain. Indeed, in Politics of Piety, Mahmoud argues that women's involvement in the Islamic revival in Egypt poses a distinct challenge to traditions of feminist theory that grow out of a normative liberal conception of politics. Whereas liberal thought allocates religion to the private space of individual belief, the women's mosque movement studied by Mahmoud reveals a different understanding of religiosity. For these women, the cultivation of piety or involvement in ritual practices, 
does not result in familiar forms of identity politics. Likewise, where liberal views of the self think about agency as the willingness to resist constraint, Mahmoud forces us to ask if all projects of self-formation or self-realization have to be guided by the same ideal of agency, the same ideal of autonomy. Thank you. And I welcome now Professor Sabah Mahmoud. Thank you so much for this um, very thoughtful and very erudite introduction. It would not be an exaggeration to say that the religious diversity that had characterized the Middle East for centuries is in precipitous decline today. The reasons for this are multiple, including the civil wars that have ravaged Iraq, Syria, and Libya, the territorial expansion of militant Islamist groups like the Islamic State, and the steady erosion of political and civil rights in the region. The US invasion of Iraq and then the sub subsequent intervention in Libya have left wide swaths of the Middle East in utter disarray and has brought the plight of religious minorities to a new impasse. My talk today is an exploration of the minority question, not so much in the context of warfare, but under conditions of stable governance where the promise of civil and political equality continues to hold sway. Because I'm interested in how religious difference has come to be regulated and remade under secularism, I focus on the problem of religious minorities rather than groups defined by ethnic, linguistic, or other attributes. In the course of this talk, I will draw upon the case of Coptic Orthodox Christians in Egypt who constitute the largest Christian minority in the Middle East today. I analyze their case in the context of a broader genealogy of the modern concept of minority rights in international law and the Middle East. My argument in a nutshell is that in the post-colonial period, modern secular governance in the Middle East has exacerbated religious tensions, hardened interfaith boundaries, and polarized religious differences rather than alleviating them. This will seem counterintuitive to those who believe that secularism is a solution to the problem of religious strife rather than a force in its creation. Yet, as I hope to show, we cannot understand religious conflict in the Middle East without adequate attention to how modern secularism has transformed religious identity and interfaith relations. Secularism has an inescapable character that emanates in part from the structure of the modern liberal state, which promises to demolish religious hierarchies in order to create a body politic in which all its members are equal before the law. The secular ideal of religious equality introduced in the 19th century transformed relations between Muslims and non-Muslims, making it possible for non-Muslims to imagine a future of civil and political equality. Despite this fundamental foundational promise, religious minorities continue to suffer various forms of discrimination in contemporary Middle Eastern societies. While Islamic concepts and practices are crucial to the production of this inequality, I argue that the modern state and its political rationality have played a far more decisive role in transforming pre-existing religious differences producing new forms of communal polarization, and making religion more rather than less salient to
to minority and majority identities alike. Two paradoxical features of this secular political rationality are particularly germane. First, its claim to religious neutrality notwithstanding, the modern state has become involved in the regulation and management of religious life to an unprecedented degree, thereby embroiling the state in substantive issues of religious doctrine and practice. Second, despite the commitment to leveling religious differences in the political sphere, modern secular governance transforms and in some instances intensifies pre-existing interfaith inequalities, allowing them to flourish in society and hence for religion to striate national identity and public norms. Following Talal Asad, I conceptualize political secularism as the modern state's sovereign power to reorganize substantive features of religious life, stipulating what religion is or ought to be, assigning its proper content, and disseminating concomitant subjectivities, ethical frameworks, and quotidian practices. The state's sovereign power to define and regulate religious life is neither monolithic nor predetermined. Rather, it is shot through with a generative contradiction. On the one hand, the liberal state claims to maintain a separation between church and state by relegating religion to the private sphere. On the other hand, modern governmentality involves the state's intervention and regulation of many aspects of socio-religious life, dissolving the distinction between public and private, thereby breaching its first claim. This does not mean that the liberal state's ideological commitment to keep religion and state apart is false or specious, or that secularism constrains religion rather than setting it free. Rather, the two propensities internal to secularism, the regulation of religious life and the construction of religion as a space free from state intervention, account for its phenomenal power to regenerate itself. Any incursion of the state into religious life often engenders the demand for keeping religion and state separate, thereby replenishing secularism's normative premise and promise. Consequently, the question of how and where to draw the line between religion and politics, between what is deemed public and what is deemed private, acquires a particular salience in modern polities and is constantly subject to legal and political contestation. So for example, you have debates in France about the legality of the ban on the headscarf, whether it actually infringes an individual's right to religious liberty, or is it the state's right to preserve the secular culture of the republic. Similarly, endless debates about whether the United States should allow prayer in public school, or what the role of Islam should be in the constitution of Tunisia, for example, or Egypt after the uprisings. As I suggested, the inescapable quality of secularism in part emanates from the structure of the modern liberal state, which promises to demolish pre-modern forms of hierarchy in order to create a polity where all citizens are supposed to be formally equal in the eyes of the law. The promise of religious equality is a transformative and signal feature of secularism. This promise, we might recall, was linked to a foundational critique of ascriptive or primordial inequality and a recalibration of particularistic forms of belonging. 
The modern political subject had to subordinate fealty to his religion, locale, and clan to loyalty to the nation state. In the 19th century, the liberatory promise of political and civil equality transformed how non-Muslim subjects of Islamic empires came to understand themselves in relationship to the state. No longer destined to remain unequal by virtue of their faith, membership in the modern polity promised to allow them to stand as equals with Muslims. A key dimension of this transformation was the legal and political elaboration of the public and private divide, which was an important source for elaborating other modern distinctions, such as secular versus religious, political versus civil, and universal versus parochial. When Coptic Orthodox Christians in Egypt at the turn of the 20th century tried to find themselves in this abstract language of citizenship, their Christianity posed fundamental, if familiar, problems. Their enfranchisement was predicated upon their willingness to privatize their Christianity. Precisely because their religious difference was deemed to be inconsequential to their public, political, and legal status. This circumscription of Coptic Christianity to the private domain went hand in hand with the enshrinement of Islam as the collective identity of the nation. Despite the citizenry's diverse allegiances, all Egyptians were expected to recognize Islam as essential to the formation of the nation in a way that other religions were not. When the first Egyptian constitution was being forged in the 1920s, Coptic Christians struggled with this condition of their political enfranchisement. Despite protestations, Coptic representatives decided to accept this wager at the time. Encapsulated in the legendary statement made by Makram Abed, a prominent Coptic leader, that he was a Muslim by country and a Christian by religion, the former public and the latter private. This earlier moment in the making of the Egyptian nation is often read as a tragic gamble that the Copts lost to Islamic forces who hijacked the promise of equal citizenship. Yet, it behooves us to think critically about the structural challenges Coptic Christians faced, not unlike other religious minorities in the framework of the nation state. The parallel with the Jewish question in Europe is instructive here. As historians of Europe tell us, Jewish emancipation over the long 19th century was predicated upon the privatization and individualization of Jewish religious life. This often entailed both the dissolution of their autonomy over various aspects of communal life and their assimilation into the cultural norms of European nations rooted in Christian values and sensibilities. Despite Jewish attempts to accommodate this demand, their difference from the identity of the nation did not simply disappear. The persistence of the Jewish question well into the 20th century indicates that Jewish difference, particularly embodied in the practices and lifestyles of the unassimilated Jews, could not be successfully abstracted. It continued to pose a challenge to the norms of European nations, which were supposedly universal and a-religious, but substantively Christian. The invention of the concept of national minority and the minority rights regime instituted under the League of Nations during the interwar period were meant to recognize and redress the assimilative force of nationalist politics directed against European Jews and other groups whose religious, ethnic, and linguistic profile rendered them vulnerable. 
Now, the fate of non-Muslim minorities in the broader Middle East cannot be traced without talking about the Ottoman Empire and its lasting legacy in shaping the contours of the modern Middle East. As you well know, the status of non-Muslims under Ottoman rule varied widely because of the empire's sheer territorial scope and long duration. Historians, however, have tried to describe key features of Ottoman rule in regard to the status of non-Muslims. A striking feature of Ottoman rule was that they did not aim to politically transform difference into sameness, but allowed religious, diverse religious communities to exist contiguously within a system where Muslims occupied the highest status. Thus, unlike Christian empires that forced non-believers to convert in order to save their souls, this was not a part of Ottoman imperial policy. This distinctive feature of Ottoman rule has led one scholar to characterize it as the empire of difference. Under the Pact of Dhimma, non-Muslims were accorded state protection and the right to practice their religion, maintain their places of worship, and have communal courts as long as they recognize the supremacy and primacy of Islam. Christian and Jews as people of the book had special status in comparison to non-Muslims who did not belong to the Abrahamic faiths. As Anwar Eman puts it, the Pact of Dhimma was a legal instrument for the political inclusion of non-Muslims into the empire as much as an expression of their local, lower doctrinal and legal status. It is often assumed that the introduction of the discourse of minority rights and religious equality helped religious minorities, particularly Christians and Jews of the empire, to free themselves of Muslim Ottoman tutelage. Yet, this story is far more complex than such a progressive narrative allows. The early history of the concept of minority rights suggests that it is better understood as a technology of modern statecraft and an emergent geopolitical order characterized by the inequality, inequality between Western and non-Western forms of sovereignty. Consider, for example, the fact that the discourse of minority rights was first introduced into the Ottoman territories by Western Christian empires as a tool to dismantle Ottoman sovereignty by claiming patronage over Ottoman Christians. As far back as the 16th century, Ottoman rulers had granted special privileges known as capitulations to Western European traders, which allowed them a considerable degree of self-government in matters of criminal and civil jurisdiction, as well as freedom of religion and worship. The capitulations were originally bestowed at a time when the Ottoman Empire was economically and politically strong. But once the balance of power shifted, the capitulations became a potent means in the hands of Western states to further their strategic advantage, which the weakened empire was unable to resist. Within this framework, the capitulary privileges came to apply not only to European traders, but also European missionaries, and later to indigenous Ottoman Christian communities as well, who were placed under the protection of European Christian rulers. Notably, no such parallel privileges existed for Ottomans in relation to non-Christian subjects of European empires. As the 19th century progressed and the Ottoman Empire started to lose large portions of its Christian-dominated territories to breakaway states, European powers played a crucial role in the destruction of the empire by deploying minority rights and religious liberty discourse 
to expedite the solution and secure their geopolitical interests in the region. The Treaty of Paris, signed in 1856, and the Treaty of Berlin, signed in 1878, both contained religious liberty provisions for non-Muslims, which the Ottomans and the newly independent states were forced to adopt under European pressure. None of these breakaway states had the political power to negotiate similar terms from Europe. According to the historian Salim Derengel, at the end of the 19th century, the Ottomans, quote, operated under severe constraints, the main constraint being the claim of great powers to be the protectors of Christians in the Ottoman Empire. This claim made the representatives of the great powers major actors in the domestic affairs of the Ottoman state, end of quote. International law initially created to uphold a political order grounded in the principle of mutual respect for state sovereignty authorized European violations of Ottoman sovereignty. 19th century European jurists decided to exclude the Ottoman state from membership in the Society of Nations on the grounds that it was an uncivilized and barbaric polity, most clearly evidenced by the Ottoman mistreatment of its Christian subjects. This was part of a broader European policy that excluded most, if not all, non-Western states from the ambit of international law. Prominent secular jurists of the time advocated European interventions on behalf of Ottoman Christians throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries, based on the argument that the principle of non-intervention applied only to European affairs and not to the Ottoman state, because it did not qualify as a member of the community of civilized nations. It is important to note at this point that even as international law became secular in its language, rationale and stipulations, it also came to root itself in Europe's unique Christian heritage, understood to be unparalleled in its humanism, especially when measured against the barbarity of Islam. Thus, key legal and political figures argued that even though European humanitarian interventions had been secularized since they were undertaken first at the time of Crusades, Christian solidarity was so strong among Europeans that the law of humanity had to accommodate the old Christian ideal. It was this sentiment of Christian fraternity that reinvigorated European support for Christian missionaries around the world in the mid-19th century, even as the West came to understand itself as resolutely secular. Thus, just as France was issuing a full-throated call to laicite in the 1840s, it witnessed a Catholic revival that reignited popular French zeal to establish new missions in the Middle East. Similarly, the United States and Britain at the time were undergoing their own Protestant awakening, which led to an expansion of Anglican and Presbyterian missions in the region. Due to a complex set of reasons, in 1856, the Ottomans passed the sweeping Hatte Hamayu decree that dismantled distinctions based on religion, language, and race, as well as forms of legal hierarchy, granting non-Muslims full civil and political rights. Historians argue that such measures were not simply politically expedient ways for the Ottomans to yield to European pressure. Rather, they were the crucial means for consolidating an increasingly fragmented polity and modernizing the state. The struggle between the crumbling Ottoman center and its dissenting Christian subjects did not, of course, end after the passage of Hatte Humayun, but intensified. 
as was evident in a series of massacres of Christians that happened in Mount Lebanon and Syria in 1860, in Crete between 1866 and 1896, and of course in Armenia between 1894 and 1896. The European press and government widely represented this conflict as an object lesson in the essential barbarity of the Ottomans, using their mistreatment of Christians as an excuse to stage humanitarian interventions on behalf of Christians and further truncating Ottoman territories. For the religious minorities in the empire, while the passage of Hatta Hamayun did not secure all the privileges they had hoped for, the discourse of minority rights and religious freedom became one of the central idioms through which to imagine a future free of servitude to Ottoman Muslim rule. What I want to point out is that by the end of the 19th century, the discourse of minority rights had become an integral part of the political vocabulary through which Muslims and non-Muslims came to perceive and measure their interfaith relations. Even though different actors prescribe different meanings to the term minority, it provided the natural ground for contesting and making certain claims in the national and transnational geopolitical space against one's adversaries and with one's allies. The Versailles Peace Conference in 1919 is narrated as a transformative moment in world history with the dissolution of empires, the Ottoman, Habsburgs, and Hohenzollern empires that lost World War I. And it heralded the creation of a new international order based on the nation state. While that institutional form was already prevalent in Western Europe and North America, the victorious powers extended nation state status to those that had broken away from the fallen empires. This privilege was denied, of course, as you may remember, to large parts of the world that were deemed unworthy of self-rule and thus brought under direct or indirect forms of colonial rule. But for the estimated 60 million people who were granted a state of their own in Central Asia, I'm sorry, in Central and Eastern Europe, this was a momentous development. Despite this new international order, the Versailles peace treaties repeated the old patterns whereby the Allied powers' recognition of the new ind newly independent states was conditioned upon a pledge to uphold the rights of religious and ethnic minorities within their own boundaries. As was the case with earlier treaties, none of the victorious Western powers, Britain, the United States, Italy, France, and Belgium, accepted similar provisions regarding their own minorities. The Welsh and Irish in Britain, Native Americans and Blacks in the United States, the Bretons and Basques in France, and the multinational Tyrol in Italy. Despite having lost the war, Germany was not subject to these conditions because of the trust Western Europeans placed in their own capacity for tolerance. Once the horror of the Holocaust unfolded almost two decades later, the irony of this judgment was not lost on those forced to accept minority stipulations in 1919. The establishment of the nation state as the dominant political form put into play a new rationale of governance that divided up the governed differently than did the empires. Instead of recognizing parallel and contiguous communities distinct by virtue of their confessional, denominational, or tribal affiliation, the nation state sought to represent the people united by a shared history, culture, and territory. In this system, each individual quasi-citizen came to be tied to the state through a system of rights and obligations. The terms 
majority and minority became a constitutional device for resolving differences that the ideology of nationalism sought to either assimilate or eliminate. Since the Versailles Peace Conference, international law has used the concept of national minority to distinguish communities that can lay claim to membership in a national polity from populations that cannot, such as migrant workers or refugees. Since 1919, minority has come to connote an internationally sanctioned and politically consolidated category whose primary reference is to the nation state in which the minority holds citizenship, rather than the group to whom she or he denominationally or ethnically belonged. Notably, the new nomenclature of minority came to encompass not only religious, but also racial, linguistic, ethnic, and cultural differences. The concept of national minority is built, however, on a fundamental tension. On the one hand, it signifies the membership of a minority group in a national polity. On the other hand, the minority group also represents an incipient threat to national unity by virtue of its difference from the majority. This threat is intrinsic to the ideology of nationalism because the modern concept of nationhood regards linguistic, ethnic, and cultural characteristics as a legitimate basis for people's claim to self-determination and independent statehood. Under the auspices of the League of Nations, the minority treaties were instituted precisely to regulate this dual character of national minorities so that we didn't have a proliferation for demand for secessionist states all over the world, which is primarily was the initial charge of the League of Nations through the minority treaty system. Since the end of the Second World War, most international jurists argue that the designation minority encompasses two distinct dimensions an objective presence of certain racial, ethnic, religious, or linguistic markers that make a group distinct from the majority population, and a subjective dimension that entails a self-recognition on the part of the minority group that they suffer from discrimination as a result of these characteristics. Minority, therefore, is a political term, that, and not just simply a demographic category, as we tend to think, um, and because it's a political term, it registers hierarchicalized difference and not simply difference, and is, in a sense, an implicit acknowledgement of the presence of discrimination within a polity against its own citizenry. Despite such attempts to secure an authoritative definition of the term minority in international law, difficult questions persist. Do Native Americans, for example, qualify as a minority, given that they face collective discrimination based on certain shared genealogical, linguistic, and tribal affiliations and distinctions? Similarly, do immigrants coming to Europe and America from former colonies who had gained citizenship status qualify as a national minority if they face discrimination based on their ethnic, racial, or religious identity? Do groups that suffer from discrimination but do not self-identify as a minority qualify for minority rights? Answers to these questions depend not on clear definitions, but on whether sovereign nation states are willing to recognize the existence of minorities and grant them rights and liberties akin to the majority populace. This, in turn, often depends on how national belonging is defined 
and whether the definition is rooted in metaphors of blood, kinship, culture, or nature. International bodies like the United Nations may force the so-called weak states to adopt minority rights, but are completely helpless when it comes to convincing Western powers like Germany, France, Britain, and the United States to adopt this. France, which has co-authored all the major international treaties since the 18th century involving minorities, continues to insist that no population living within its borders fits the description of the term as stated in the International Conventions on Civil and Political Rights to this day. Now, the history that I have presented here of minority rights is often read as geopolitical powers cynically manipulating otherwise noble principles in service of realpolitik, or as the misuse of the virtue of tolerance that Western Europeans discovered for themselves and then slowly introduced to less enlightened cultures, sometimes through imperial force and sometimes through soft power such as international diplomacy. Seen in this way, the principle itself, its logic, its aim, and its substantive meaning remains unsullied by the intentions of the empires and states that sought to either promote it or subvert it. This manner of thinking needs to be thought urgently for two reasons. First, it is important to understand that when Western Europeans forced weaker states to recognize minority rights, they were not simply bringing the culture of tolerance to non-Western peoples and lands. If this were so, the European powers would have accepted similar provisions for their own minorities, which they have refused to do throughout history. As my talk shows, the discourse of minority rights has been tied from its very inception to raison d'etat, regional and national security, and geopolitics. Rather than see it as a universally applicable moral principle, or a simply a human right, it is best understood as a strategy of secular liberal governance aimed at regulating and managing difference, difference that is either racial, ethnic, religious, or cultural within a national polity. Seen from this perspective, minority rights does not, does not signify a single essence or meaning. It has changed historically, in large part determined by the context of power relations within which it is inserted. Second, it is also wrong to assume that the concept of minority rights is a neutral legal instrument that protects certain groups from social inequality and discrimination. People who are supposed to benefit from this protection are also transformed by virtue of their subjection to the calculus of state and geopolitical power in unique and unpredictable ways. For example, recognizing a group as a minority transforms its self-understanding, its relationship to other religious communities and the state, and its standing in the eyes of the law. The discourse of minority rights is also an important marker of secularism's inability to eradicate religious differences and hierarchies from the political life of its citizenry. The demand for minority rights brings the issue of difference back into the abstract and disembodied language of citizenship. Minority rights movements emerge when the majoritarian construction of the nation fails to incorporate its others. In this sense, the demand for minority rights is symptomatic of the inequalities, of the inequalities that permeate the social life of a polity. An inequality that calls into question 
the undelivered promise of civil and political equality. That was Professor Mahmoud speaking at Boazici University in Istanbul in 2015. Sabah Mahmoud was a professor of anthropology and a scholar of modern Egypt at the University of California, Berkeley. In her academic work, she made vital contributions to the debate on secularism and religion in public life. Professor Mahmoud passed away on March 10th after a battle with cancer. We extend our deepest condolences to her family, friends, and colleagues. She will be missed. From Pacifico Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Thank you. 
world-renowned dancer and choreographer, Shahrokh Mashkin Ghalam, has dedicated his life to bridging different cultures by infusing elements of flamenco, Persian, Indonesian, martial arts, Indian Katakali dance, and other dance traditions into his repertoire. On Sunday, March 18th, he will perform Love Stories of Shahnameh at the Montgomery Theater in San Jose. Love Stories of Shahnameh is based on epic poems from Ferdowsi's Shahnameh or the Book of Kings, one of the masterpieces of Persian literature. In anticipation of the performance, he spoke with Malihe, telling her how he began his love affair with dance. We never choose really our life. This is the accident of life, and I took it, actually, because that was meant to be for me. I was born in a family where music and literature, especially poetry, was dominating our life, especially my father. He was in love with literature and music, traditional music, and I was like, naturally, I was concave to that information, which is art. Naturally, I'm more concave than convex. As a man, it's very paradoxical because most of the men are convex. I'm mostly concave, and I received all this information, which was artistic information. So I accepted by nature that was not intellectual, and I grew up with that, but without any obstacle because of the nature of my behavior or uh, reactional uh, kid. And nobody stopped me to take the decision to do whatever I wish to do. And I grew up with this uh, freedom of being myself. And, of course, I was in the middle of the artists, singers, musicians around my father. And suddenly I realized, so this is my way. I never had the chance to do something else. Even for my university, when I choose to be an artist, I study story of art and theater in the University of Paris. Nobody asked me why you choose that and why you're going to be an actor. That was my life. Nobody questioned anything about my life. And so I, I came to this after being graduated from the university after my license. Was you got your degree in theater. Degree, yes. Yeah. After two years, I uh, met Ariane Mnushkin, which is one of the most important theater director in France, in the world. She is very involved with dance, especially Middle Eastern and Far Eastern uh, movement of dance and theater like Katakali, Bhartnatyam, um, which is the very deep and old form of Indian theater. Also, Topeng and Baris, which is Indonesian, and No and Kabuki, which is Japanese. She is in love with that kind of old forms of theater and art. And, of course, we had to learn deeply all these informations. And also, in my university, I studied 
many kind of dance, like contemporary dance, African dance, all kind of dance because I was in love with that. And I was informed with different kind of art and dance. And then when I met Ariane Nushkin uh, in Tadj Soleil, I start as an actor, but at the same time, parallelly, I was a dancer and growing as a dancer, student. Then when uh, I realized my being on the scene is a mixture of dance and theater, and after um, leaving Ariane Nushin's company, Théâtre du Soleil, I continue to be like what I am right now. It's interesting you say that because your unique dance style really stands out. You transcend geographical or cultural boundaries, even though you predominantly use rich Persian classical music, poetry in your dance repertoire. You've developed a unique style by infusing, as you said, many musical traditions, such as Sufi world dancing, flamenco, Indonesian, martial art, Indian katakali dance, and more. How do you weave in these different traditions with Persian classical dance? This is exactly what you mentioned right before, because there is no boundary in art. So when we go to learn something in art, they don't ask you where you come from, what's your language, what's your color. For your inscription to the School of Art, that doesn't matter where you come from. And each information is a complementary information. You can be richer if you are from somewhere else. That's what I learned when I was kid. More I have information, more interesting I am compared to others. For example, Ariane Mishkin, she is French, of course, but with a background, her mom is uh, English and father is a Russian. She is already a mixture of culture, and she was always saying to my French colleagues, pure French, she was just making fun of them, always making joke of uh, their pure race, and she gave them always that sentence very sarcastically, go and travel around the world, see others. I had that information that being from somewhere else is a richness. And I never had to cover it or hide it to parade like somebody else. Mm. And more information I could have from my own culture that could be a plus. You know, Mm. that's why I didn't have any idea about hiding anything. And my richness was just exactly for that being a mixture of culture. That's why when you studied Indian dance and you were from Iran and you studied Russian dance or contemporary dance or whatever, and you automatically make mixture in your body, in your mind, because it is your interpretation of that, because of the capacity of your being, because I am from somewhere else. Mm. So that means the information is already mixed Since you have been dancing and performing for many years, and you have been traveling all over the world, performing with Iranian, Australians, and British, and French artists, do you see Iranians in the diaspora becoming more and more interested in dance, again, as an art form, 
as a discipline where they get educated in and they use it as a profession. Um, do yeah, you see that the, more? Yeah, because of the freedom of the new generation. The new generation who was born out of Iran, I mean, so they are confronted to the very traditional education of family mm. and the, the freedom that they can feel in the school, in the street, when they are going around with their uh, friends. They see a huge difference in between the culture of the parents who believe they are not traditional, but they are. Mm. And most of the parents, even very intellectual, very feminist mothers, they don't want kids to be artists. They prefer them being doctor or engineer or whatever, but artists is not sure for their future. That's the hugest problem. But more and more we see kids confronted in the this big struggle in between the traditional family and what they believe correct for mm -hmm. themselves. And they want, that was not very easy for them 20 years ago, but it's much easier right now because more and more they see people, Iranian in diaspora, being artists and being free to do whatever they wish. The parents, they don't have any choice. They mm -hmm. have to accept even if it's against their traditional way of thinking. It is such a wonderful way for a lot of Iranians in the diaspora to get introduced and connect with the Iranian culture and history. And that takes me to my next question. This Sunday, you will be performing the tales of Khosrow and Shirin, Bahram and Arezu, and Sohrab and Gorda Farid from Ferdosi's Shahnama or the Book of Kings, one of the masterpieces of Persian literature. Can you talk about your upcoming performance? On the 18th in San Jose, we have this performance, which is a love story of Shahnama. Shahnama, of course, uh, as you mentioned, the hugest mythologist book for Persian culture. And uh, there is several love stories in it, and I choose three of these love stories, which are the most maybe famous. The first of all is Khosrow and Shirin, mm. which is very similar to Romeo and Juliet in Western culture. It's a beautiful story in between the prince of Persia, Khosrow, and a princess of Armenia. And then the last one, which is like a fighter, a two hero, Sohrab and Gorda Farid, during a war, they discover each other, they fall in love. So I choose this tree story, and I wanted absolutely to make them understandable by every culture and any languages, mm -hmm. without the uh, boundary of language. The body language is international. That's why I choose my language, which is more international, to explain love story through that. But, of course, I was at the same time very interested by the poetry itself. And I think the traduction of uh, poetry is impossible. We have to know a language. We have to know a culture to get the information. When we try to translate Hosro and Shirin, that became a joke. It's not any more interesting because mm. there is a huge background cultural behind any word used in this poetry. To try to translate what's by subtitle or side title that kill 
performance. That's why we gave the people a short resume of the story, and then they have just to follow. Even if narrator like Gordon Fares mm-hmm. is going to give us a few lines of this beautiful poetry, this is used as a music as well. Mm-hmm. It is not just for people. to be confused or to understand what we are going to translate then by our body, by our choreography, by our dance, to make this understandable, not at all. Because it is interpretation of myself by my choreography of this story. Mm-hmm. I cannot do all the story, all the love story of Hosru and Shirin in a five minute of dance. It is impossible, mm-hmm. of course. Even for uh, Romeo and Juliet, it is impossible. We have to, to spend hours and hours just by body to translate it. It is impossible. This is a short, brief moment section of this love story I'm using by my choreography. But this one is like, you know, a complimentary. The poetry said by the narrator, Gordon Farid, is used as a music, as an ambience. For the mm-hmm. foreigner who cannot understand Persian language, they just hear this huge, beautiful poetry mm-hmm. in a beautiful language. Most of them, they don't know. We had that experience in Vienna, Austria. Most of the audience was Austrian, and they couldn't understand a word of Persian poetry, but everybody was so touched. They told me after the play, they, they were so touched by the way uh, Gordofer had said the story, and that was so beautiful because they used the whole section of poetry as a music, like a journey in some uh, thousand and one night story. They mm-hmm. get in. When you, we go to China, we don't go with a dictionary. You know, you go to discover the culture. Uh, you don't ask every time somebody to translate for you because you understand it. And I'm sure everybody can understand the meaning, the deep meaning of the love stories in any language. When I'm going to see a performance in Korean language in Pansuri during five hours, I don't follow the subtitle. I'm just leaving myself, my feeling free to just get in all the story and information coming from that culture, which is Korean culture. And I'm waiting for the same from my audience in other countries without understanding a word of Persian. Shahrokh Moshkin Dralam is a world-renowned dancer and choreographer. His newest performance, Love Stories of Shahnameh, will be playing at the Montgomery Theater in San Jose on Sunday, March 18th, 7 p.m. For more information, you can call 831-234-0121 or go to our Facebook page, Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com. Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. (laughs) 